to listen to me, of all people, right at this very moment. I mean, I know you're busy, and you're probably just as mixed up about everything as I am. Because since yesterday, well, well, things have obviously changed since yesterday. That's totally clear. Things are definitely different in one way or another. I mean, it's been quite a journey, my God. And the last part of it was so crazy. <laughs> anyway, wait. I have to ask you. Did anyone give you one of these funny little bottles of uh, whatever this is? Because I said, ooh, I'm feeling a bit weak or a bit giddy or something. And somebody just handed me one of these bottles and said, Look, if you feel like that, take some of this. Well, I don't know what it is. It looks a bit odd. and I really don't know if I'm going to try it or not. Anyway, you apparently want to hear something about me and my life. Thank you. And... I'm extremely eager to tell you all about me in my life. But I have to admit that I've been having terrible memory problems recently. And I must say, the last few years are a complete blank. I, I seriously don't remember them at all. I don't even remember yesterday. I can't remember anything about it. I don't even remember where I was, much less what I did. But luckily for me, and you, several years ago, I actually began work on some autobiographical sketches, which I'd planned to compile into a book. And so I'm going to rely on those quite a bit, you see. And, and before I begin, I just have to say that there's something so delicious to me about this whole experience of talking to you. I mean... <laughs> I don't know where I am. You know, they've put me in a not unattractive sort of rose-colored robe with very nice wallpaper and a nice sofa, and I'm in my pajamas. And the waves of sound that are made by my voice are gently floating out to envelop you surround you and caress you and I must say it's a very agreeable sensation for me it's very lovely but but the only problem is that I'm suddenly feeling a bit weak and slightly not very well I'm thinking I might actually 
pass out, which would whoa, huh? You know, I, I think I better I better try some of this stuff in the bottle after all, because the oh boy. And here's a very nice glass. Hey, that's not bad. Actually, rather good, yes. Whoa, yes, that feels much better. Whoa! So, now I definitely want to tell you about what happened yesterday. Because, you see, it was exactly 8 o'clock yesterday morning when I finally sat down to my breakfast table. And my breakfast table, you see, is outside, on my balcony, on a sort of golden terrace looking out on the sea. And so it's all very pleasant. But what I was unfortunately obliged to do there, <laughs> as at every meal, was to somehow manage to swallow a few spoonfuls of the gritty, thin, horrible gruel that was now the only thing I was able to eat. Well, all right, to explain. I don't know whether you've ever heard of Dr. Felix Gross, have you? Well, Dr. Gross was or is a nutritionist to the privileged in the place where I lived. And his job was to keep all of his patients very well supplied with these different weekly batches of disgusting gruel, which more or less kept up week by week with the ever-changing, slippery development of the awful stomach illness that had suddenly and mysteriously appeared in our midst at a certain point, and that we all seemed to have. I mean, to be a bit more specific, as you all know very well, a human being can't keep itself going, can't create energy, strength, or warmth for itself or keep itself alive by swallowing a mouthful of stones. But it also can't keep itself going or keep itself alive by swallowing, let's say, a mouthful of rice. Unless and until that rice has been chemically transformed inside its body into a substance that's able to perform those functions, often glucose if you happen to care. Digestion, in other words, is a wonderful and complicated process, and it can obviously fail or fall apart at any one of its thousands of wonderful and complicated junctures. And for whatever reason, there came a moment for most of us when we simply couldn't digest most foods anymore. And the list of foods we could digest kept changing and ultimately shrinking as more and more foods became impossible for each of us to eat. Most people started living on this government-processed gruel that almost always failed to keep up with the constantly shifting list of things that sickened us. So that for most people, the excruciating stomach pain and the vomiting and other expressions of digestive collapse got worse and worse as the hours of the day passed. So that by evening, most of these people were subsisting in a kind of agony. And Gross's gruel was a more effective type of gruel, or so we hoped. 
In any case, even with Gross's help, we woke up in pain every day, with our stomachs terribly sore and sort of throbbing. And if we were lucky, we would have managed three or four hours of sleep, perhaps interrupted only once or twice by a brief, quickly dispatched vomit or two. Well, at any rate, yesterday I hadn't had more than two spoonfuls of gruel when quite unexpectedly the young woman I lived with, Rose, suddenly appeared on my balcony, holding a letter addressed to me that had been delivered to our door. Now Rose was extremely close to my wife, Cerise, and Rose quite often received letters from Cerise because Cerise lived quite far away, way off in the country. But it had been a very long time since anyone had written a letter to me. So Rose gave me the letter and walked away without saying very much. And I opened the envelope and it seemed to be an invitation of some kind. And then suddenly I sneezed. <laughs> Cat dander? That seemed odd. And the invitation, rudely, was for that very afternoon. And it was signed simply, Love Blanche. Well, that was odd, too, because Blanche, the only Blanche I knew, was certainly dead. I knew she was dead because I'd been present at her death. And the other thing that was odd was that the Blanche I knew was definitely a cat. And even if they're very much alive, cats can't write. Well, so there was something curious, clearly. But I thought to myself, well, I mean, of course I'll go. I mean, you know, why wouldn't I? But at any rate, to get back to my autobiographical sketches, please let me start by reciting for you the epigraph I planned for the book after thinking about it for a while. It's by Count de Roar, and it goes like this. When I finally awakened after a long, long sleep with many dreams, I was surprised to find that I was lying on a battlefield and holding a sword. It was just after dawn, the air was cold, and the ground was damp with my own blood. As I wondered what circumstances could have brought me here, I looked across the vast expanse of the plain on which I lay, and it seemed that I could see grasses of a thousand colors, in which many rabbits in absolute silence were leaping and running like small horses. And now I'll read you the very beginning section of my book. 
I'm a lucky person. I was born lucky. And to call a person lucky means really that good things sort of rush toward that person, sort of fly toward them somehow. Special privileges that other people don't have. And the privileges sort of carve out little channels in the fabric of the universe. Channels that flow in that person's direction. So that each good thing that went in their direction yesterday helps to make it more likely that more good things will go in their direction today. And I'm a lucky person. And it's nice to be lucky because other people can't help being drawn to people who are lucky. It's part of our fundamental makeup. And even words like friendship and love mainly refer to the feelings that draw us all toward lucky people. And so lucky people are always surrounded by friends and get to pick whoever they like to keep them company every day, which is a very agreeable situation. And then I explain why I was never one of those people who felt guilty because they were lucky. I came, you see, from an optimistic generation. We love to solve problems. Now, if you want to build a very tall building, or you want to get from point A to point B, those are problems. And in principle, a problem of that kind can eventually be solved. But of course, the one thing that in principle cannot be solved is luck. You can't fix luck. There's good luck for some people and bad luck for other people, and that's just the way things work in the universe that human beings live in. That's the way they have to work, because in that particular universe, in regard to whatever's bigger than an atom, each thing has a certain location and no two things can share exactly the same location. So, in any line of ducks in a pond, one duck and only one duck will be in front, and one duck and only one duck will be in back. Only one face of the dice can stand on top, not all six. And in the game of musical chairs... The number of chairs is always one less than the number of people. And when the music stops, there's always one person who has no chair. So I was lucky. I was born into fortunate circumstances. I grew up, I became a doctor. And then on one fateful night, after having dinner at the Grand Circle Restaurant, Five other young doctors and I passed around six of that restaurant's blue paper napkins, and we each wrote down on our napkin our answer to the question, what is the greatest problem facing the world today? And incredibly, we all came up with essentially the same answer. It was all about food. There just wasn't enough food on the planet for people to eat. And after we left the restaurant, I went home, and I stayed up all night. And the next morning, I went to my office and told my secretary that I was going to wind down my private medical practice, turn the little building next door into a laboratory, and do some research. And a year later, 
I'd invented a very unusual nutrient for animals. Grain number one, as I decided to call it. A very tasty sort of grain that was saturated with a chemical compound I'd created. And then I hired some other young doctors and scientists to help me, and we hired a few more, and then, crossing all the boundaries of nationalities and continents, we hired a few more, and ultimately, in not too many years, we'd figured out how to use grain number one in all its different forms to create food where there'd been no food. Starting by quietly giving a certain group of frogs an injection of it, after which their bodies could very easily process a porridge we fed them that was made up entirely out of other frogs, and then moving on to forcing a certain variant of it into the upper atmosphere, so that an odd sort of rain began sprinkling down onto fields full of cows, with the result that cows who formerly had lived only off grass within a few months were happily living off skunks and rats and foxes instead. And etc., 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 that turned out to be the work of our generation. Grain number one enabled 90% of the existing animal species on Earth, including 80% of the herbivores, to achieve astonishing efficiency in chemically breaking down the flesh of other animals, including the flesh of members of their own species, dramatically reducing their need to consume plants. And once the capacity of the animals for processing various foods had changed, simple Pavlovian conditioning then led them to change their former eating habits as well. And we soon saw the pressure on the planet's dwindling supply of plants and pasture land being drastically alleviated. Animals that could be used as basic nourishment for humans were suddenly multiplying in astounding numbers, virtually ending humanity's deficit in food. Grain number one seemed to be the key to unlocking some sort of molecular inhibition, so that the animals who consumed it grew stronger and sleeker than they'd ever been before. There was an initial period of months or years after an animal's first contact with grain number one when you could observe in their behavior an almost mind-boggling vitality. Pigs, for example, would frequently have sexual intercourse 15 or 16 times every single day. And sometimes, after they'd eaten a hearty meal of one form or another of grain number one, they'd engage in different sorts of sexual experimentation that had never previously been observed in pigs. Oh, God, that reminds me suddenly of my favorite old alcoholic biology teacher, Mr. Matthews. <laughs> Because old Mr. Matthews always used to say to us, with such a strange expression on his face, 
boys and girls, human beings have two basic needs, the need for food and the need for sex. <laughs> anyway, in some animals, this remarkable liveliness sometimes diminished or, or was even replaced by a sort of lethargy or torpor and Sometimes the ability of the animals to recognize familiar things was slightly impaired. But the ease with which these animals could process animal matter never declined. And so grain number one changed the world, and I became a wealthy man. And, of course, in a moderate way, I tried some of the forms of my compound myself in the early days, I have to admit. Don't tell me you wouldn't have. It was an amazing time. So before I'd even celebrated my 39th birthday, grain number one had spread through the water and the soil, and then it was everywhere. And now I'm feeling a bit weaker again. Damn. Oh, but I wanted to tell you a bit about my wife, Cerise, because we'd already gotten together when my company really started to expand. But the thing I have to say about my relationship with Cerise was that I never really understood her. She was hard to describe. She was very restless, you see. She couldn't stand being trapped in one place. She'd stay with me in our house for a while, and then she'd leave for a while and go off to somewhere far, far away. Sometimes she'd take photographs, and when she came back, she'd show me where she'd been. And sometimes she just didn't say. Then finally, she moved way off into the countryside, and I rarely saw her. But as I said, she'd gotten quite close to my girlfriend Rose and often wrote her letters. Rose kept those letters to herself, but the day before yesterday I was doing some cleaning and I ran across one that she must have written to Rose maybe a year ago. Don't ask me what it means because I don't know, but it has a gloomy tone. Can't write much now. Things are worse. The fur of the wolves is falling out. I find it everywhere. And um, yesterday, underneath a tree, a, a pile of dead squirrels, at least a hundred of them huddled together with a few on top that were still alive but too sick to move. It was too late to do anything. They couldn't be saved. No idea what that's all about. God, I just can't. I better. I, I, I think I need a bit more of this drink. Whoa! What a punch that has! Fantastically great! <laughs> But I'm remembering something terrible. 
something... I learned some things yesterday that were... No. Wait. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I was telling you about yesterday morning and the invitation I received and my sneezing fit. And, well, after that, I left my breakfast table and I went into my bedroom. And I guess what I actually did then, frankly, was that I turned on all the lights and I took off my pajamas and I looked at my dick. Well, that was enlivening. And then, I mean, to go through this precisely, I guess the next thing I did was that I sat down in my favorite armchair, and I was naked, of course, and so somehow I started thinking about nakedness, nudity, you know, and then I started to think about the nakedness of women and the history, the evolution I'd witnessed in my life and all the various developments that had occurred in the whole institution of women taking their clothes off in public, which is a subject that's always fascinated me. Well, because you see, in the city where I grew up and where I got older, there were really, up until 20 years or so ago, only two theaters where women did that. There was the Dome of Life over in what was called the Flower District, and then there was a beautiful place called Fruit Salad with Cream that was actually only three blocks away from my own house, which was on a wonderful street called Pushbroom Lane. And you see, there were so many changes in the styles and practices of that incredible art form over the decades of my life, and many of the changes started in that very theater. Because, you see, I can remember back to the time when the girls at that theater would strip and the men would just sit in the audience fully clothed. <laughs> And then I can remember the time, many years later, after I was 40 or so, when the strippers began begging the men in the audience to pull down their trousers and show their penises. And then I can remember the time, not long after that, when the girls began to coax the men and cajole them into masturbating openly during the shows. <laughs> Yes, you see, because masturbation itself was much less common then. Oh, yes, I mean, you know, when I was a boy, for example, well, parents never masturbated in front of their children. In fact, children never masturbated in front of their parents. And children, of course, would never make out with their parents or fuck them ever because that would have been seen as utterly shocking. <laughs> you see, when I was around 40, there was a relatively brief period of change in social customs, and quite a few things actually changed permanently then. But I'd have to say that up until that point, you see, and during the whole period of time when I was growing up, well, people simply didn't think very much about their genitals at all. I'm telling you the truth. And they didn't talk about them. So for me, you see, the way things eventually developed seemed quite extraordinary. 
the way people began to talk about their penises and vaginas in such detail at dinner parties and in magazines and in interviews, not just actors, but statesmen and political leaders. My penis, my vagina. Well, it was all suddenly so different. And I mean, somehow at that time, I actually became much more interested in my own genitals. And even as the years passed and I began to lose interest in quite a few things, I never quite lost interest in my own dick. <laughs> and, and, and certainly if you'd asked me, I always would have said, well, yes, of course, my dick is my friend. And actually, my dick is my best friend. And in a certain way, it's my only friend. <laughs> and of course, the funny thing was that I always knew that my friend, my best friend, and perhaps my only friend, was actually quite funny looking. I knew that, of course. Because a penis simply never can be or will be as elegant or as beautiful as a foot, say, or a hand or a face or not to mention a woman's breast. A penis by its nature is simply funny. Odd, you know, odd and funny. I never got used to the way it looked. I was always surprised. And yet all the same, I did think my friend had a wonderful face. It was so simple. No eyes, no nose, just a simple mouth, permanently fixed in a sort of sad, wistful smile. And well, of course, my relationship with my dick was not just a friendship, as you can imagine. It was actually a love affair, an affair so intense that there was hardly room for anyone else. And of course, I always believed that to be involved with another human being was a marvelous thing. But there was always that moment of, yes, I love you, but now please go away because I need to spend time alone with my friend. And I know what you're thinking. So I have to say that I was never tempted to live homosexually. I mean, I always knew that two dicks in one house would be one too many because I would never have loved any other dick the way I loved my own. I would have seen it much too objectively, and I wouldn't have known what to do with the person on the other end of it, you see. In other words, I always knew that the very best thing about my dick was that the person on the other end of it was only me. I could be alone with my own dick, in other words, which I certainly couldn't have been with anyone else's. And, of course, I love to be alone. I loved it, loved it. I loved it more than anything in the world. I love to be alone. But best of all, I love to be alone with a friend. But that was really only possible with one particular friend. And that was my oldest, closest friend. 
God, I remember how we'd go on these incredible vacations, just the two of us. Oh, there was a beautiful one when we went to France. We had a wonderful time. And I remember one day in the shower, my friend got all excited, as sometimes happened, and I suddenly thought to myself, my God, you're scary, because my friend looked violent, extreme, almost out of control. But then I thought, well, really? It's a fantastic thing that a respectable, well-mannered person like me can have such a massive, powerful, and fearless friend. You've been listening to Grasses of a Thousand Colors by Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory, and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Ben, Julie Haggerty as Cerise, Jennifer Tilly as Robin, and Emily Cass McDonald as Rose. Bruce Odland was the composer, engineer, designer, editor, and podcast director. The mezzo-soprano was Hai Ting Chin. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. Many thanks to Rob Wiener, Paul Simon, the Royal Court Theatre, Dominic Cook, Oscar Eustace, and Jeffrey Horowitz. These podcasts were produced by Mac Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon, Production.